Hello, for real. <laughs> Hi, for real. We're, oh, we're yeah. recording. Great. Yeah. So um, I'm here talking today to Catherine Devaney. Did I say that right, Catherine? That is the right pronunciation. Yeah. And you can call okay. me Katie also. And I do like to call you Katie. I was going to ask. Yeah. Thank you, Katie. And um, Katie is a really cool person. I, I want you to say a little bit about your background yourself. That way I don't mess it up. Um, but but what I know of you is um, that you were teaching at um, Stanford a little while back. And in October of last year, 2018, I came to the Cohack house where you were uh, visiting. Or rather, I was visiting. You were living there. And um, you all hosted me uh, very generously for my time in San Francisco, the Bay Area. And it was uh, really fun to meet you and learn about your research. You're like a serious neuroscience meditation geek. <laughs> That's what how I would describe you. I people keep calling me serious, and uh, I can't help but laugh whenever that happens. <laughs> You're seriously funny too, and seriously lighthearted. That was my experience of you, um, and so uh, you know, within a, I think it was a little a few minutes of talking, I was like, "Hey, can we uh, talk on the podcast sometime?" And you were like, um, I'm not quite ready to talk about some of the super nerdy stuff I'm working on because uh, it's still er early days in the ner in the nerdery department. <laughs> um, but you have been working on, we're working on a project called SF Dharma Collective. And that's something that we sort of talked a bit about. And, um, and you said that that felt appropriate to talk about that on the podcast. So uh, you're here kind of representing that project, which you were a part of the initial uh, group of people that helped bring it about. I Yes. Kind of how I understand it. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, what do you call yourselves, uh, the initial So we group? have gone through multiple iterations on what we're calling ourselves. Um, we're just now kind of exiting the joyful anarchy phase of governance and uh, <laughs> something new is emerging. So we've gone through a few different names. Um, I forget what we were originally called. And then um, for a while, we were the interim board um, because we were meeting in a kind of leadership capacity in what we assumed was a placeholder for an actual board of directors that would run things. And then we recently um, renamed ourselves to the executive council um, with the idea that we were holding space for hopefully um, an eventual hire. Um, so we're currently an all student run, all volunteer collective, but eventually we hope to have at least one person kind of doing this, managing operations as their job. Um, so we're calling ourselves the executive council, but due to our kind of like punk rock, do it yourself aesthetic, a lot of people have trouble with the word executive. So we're also just referring to ourselves as the Monday meeting because that's when we meet. <laughs> that, it reminds me of going up to, to an event a few years ago at, at Harvard Divinity School and it was just called the gathering. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm at the gathering, <laughs> <laughs> the Monday meeting. The Monday meeting. We recently, and we can get into this more later too, but we recently had our first um, kind of governance uh, day-long retreat where we were working on leadership structure, governance structure, mm -hmm. decision-making. And we all went around in a circle and talked about, you know, 
our hopes and fears for the organization and what we envisioned. And um, one commonality that emerged is all of us in the leadership all have some kind of serious issue with authority. <laughs> rebels, the rebels. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so we've all sort of found ourselves in the interesting position of having um, having a kind of punk aesthetic, having kind of issue with hierarchical structures and authority and yet being in a position to be making decisions um, for this organization. Yes. It's been very juicy and very interesting. That, this reminds me of uh, something that John Maida, uh, who is a design professor, I believe at Rhode Island, he's the president of Rhode Island College maybe. Mm -hmm. And then he's now working at WordPress where he's focused on diversity and inclusion issues. Um, he, in this uh, conference that he was hosting, uh, PopTech, he said that, opening of the conference uh, when rebels mature they build institutions <laughs> <laughs> and it almost sounded like almost like a, a threat or something <laughs> at the time that's how i took it but it sounds like what you're doing <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah and and it's a really cool um project i mean that that was when i was there in San Francisco, this is part I didn't mention. Uh, you know, when I was there visiting, uh, I got a really wonderful invitation to come and do an evening teaching and talk and do some social meditation. And the space itself um, has history. Uh, I do want to ask you about the history of this, sure. like how this yeah. started, because I know the the origin story is, you know, it's one born of kind of chaos and conflict and complexity. Yeah, um, yeah I would love to hear about that. But, you know, when I first came in and you know, to the story right after this, I just saw a beautiful building and uh, a lovely space for practice, um, you know, can hold quite a number of folks in the space. And it's like in a very central part um, in San Francisco. And, and, and in which neighborhood is it? So located? we're in the mission. We're right in the mission, by the 24th street mission. Uh, by yeah. the top. So we're really in kind of the heart of the mission. Yeah. Yeah. Mission San Francisco. And, you know, so what I saw was a, a almost like a ragtag group of people building something, a community together, and this being in a kind of an early uh, stage of its development. And you, along with a number of other folks, uh, were, were kind of taking on the leadership, you know, and the work to make this volunteer based dharma organization that has a lease on this beautiful physical space and the mission happen and do it in a different way yes that is accurate um so when um i guess i can talk a little bit more about the history now because that kind of relates um so yeah, please we um the physical space and the organization that we grew out of is uh was formerly against the stream and um I actually moved to San Francisco last March and started coming into the Dharma Collective because I was a huge fan of Michael Taft's podcast, Deconstructing Yourself. I'd been listening to it in Boston, um, and it was really kind of a Dharma beacon of um, serious practitioners being interviewed about the nitty-gritty aspects of their practice. So when I found out that he was teaching at Against the Stream, um, I think after the first time I went, I didn't miss a single Thursday as long as I was in town. So I started going in March and unbeknownst to me at the time, also last March, um, an internal investigation was beginning amongst the leadership of Against the Stream into the founder of that organization 
for um, no Levine, no Levine for uh, sexual misconduct and um, different chapters of the uh, Against the Stream organization handled that news in different ways. So the Boston chapter, for example, left the organization on the allegations. They left in March and became the Boston Meditation Center. Um, but I was just continuing to sit against the stream, didn't even know that this was going on. Um, and then against the stream announced in late August of this year that their internal investigation had found serious enough concerns, um, that they were, um, that they were disbanding. And, um, I honestly haven't dug very deep into the details of any of that. Having come on at the end, I never sat with Noah. Um, I never even met him, came in because of Michael. And what I saw, um, the main things that I've seen related to Noah in the community have been a lot of, uh, pain and a lot of confusion. And, um, when we got the letter that Against the Stream was disbanding, that was kind of the first time I'd heard that anything was amiss or that any investigation was going on. So in the wake of that news, um, one of the first things that happened is uh, we all started coming together as a community and talking about what to do next. Um, a lot of people who were sitting at Against the Stream are people who don't necessarily want to go um, to, how do I put this politely, a sort of more mainstream Dharma um, organization where everyone is sort of wearing the flowing white and like speaking in very, you know, like very spiritual way. Like this was sort of a, this is sure. kind of a punk rock organization. Um, yeah. And a lot of people are also. Not a hippie aesthetic. Exactly. Yeah. It was more, more of a, I mean, I think Noah's, one of Noah's books is called Dharma Punks. Yeah. Um, and so there is that sort of anti-authoritarian, you, you know. You get the Gen X. Yeah. DNA there. Yeah. There was like a sort of do it yourself, um, mm -hmm. practical Dharma thread. Yeah. And mm -hmm. also a lot of people in our community are in recovery. Um, so we had some sort of um, deep refuge groups for people in recovery. So the community felt. Which was also tied to Noah's work and the whole yes. refuge recovery. Yeah. And they. For profit. They side of this teaching thing. Uh, the San Francisco chapter started meeting somewhere else right away. And that's a totally understandable decision. Like continuity of a group like that uh, is of primary importance. And we didn't know for a long time if we were going to keep the space or what was going to happen. So the community, the point is the community felt very precious to a lot of us for a lot of different reasons. And it felt like a spiritual home. And even though we've all obviously being practitioners done a lot of work around impermanence, this was a situation where a little bit of, of clinging felt appropriate. <laughs> so we had a few meetings that were kind of like initial chaos sort of triage meetings, just like, what do we do? You know, do we find a new place to meet? Do we start meeting in each other's houses? Um, I remember sending some emails out to people just saying, like, I live far from the city, but we can meet at my house. Um, turns out I wasn't the only person sending those emails. Pretty much everyone who could host was volunteering their space. And then the idea emerged, what if we just keep the space? 
And it was this moment of uh, realization of the future possibility that this community could continue. Um, and there are two people in the community in particular, uh, Tia and Jim, who did a lot of work in the early stages of um, both psychologically and practically looking into keeping the lease and what we'd need to do to continue on in the space. And then um, Michael Taft was the first teacher who said, well, if you guys keep the space, I'll keep teaching here. So we had, um, after this sort of chaotic September, um, when Against the Stream officially closed at the last week of September, the first week in October, we had a Thursday sit with Michael Taft. There's a picture of that somewhere. Um, and it was the beginning of us keeping the space. And then for a long time, we were operating with this beautiful mindset of just impermanence right in the front of everything we were doing. Yeah. Like how long will we be able to keep this thing rolling? Yeah. We were booking people in October for, you know, late November and saying, we don't know if we're actually going to be here. So, <laughs> but you know, if you're in town and we're still here, why don't you come in and do a sit? Um, and yep. slowly things just started coalescing. Um, people who were part of the former community and cared about it um, ended up just empowering each other and empowering ourselves to start making decisions and start growing. Mm -hmm. um, so I had this moment where one of the Thursday nights, uh, one of Michael sits, uh, Jenny, who's been volunteering with Michael for the last four years. Oh yeah. She's a powerhouse. Yeah. She's amazing. <laughs> and she got up at the end of the sit and she said, this is our sangha now. This is all of ours. This belongs to all of us. And that was a real moment for me where I realized, oh my gosh, it does. And I just started calling teachers I knew and telling them about the space and trying to bring them in. Um, there was yeah. this powerful realization that really came to me from Jenny that this space belongs to everyone who sets foot in it, um, whether one time or who comes every day. And we're now operating on, there's about 15 of us in the, uh, the Monday meeting. And then we're operating on the strength of our sort of groundedness in the Dharma and also in our ability to share that groundedness with people we come into contact with and with people who come in. Okay, cool. So you've got kind of, I would, I would almost call this like a peer to peer um, structure that has emerged. That is true. And that's actually intentional. So part of um, we're still working on a mission statement, but part of our values acutely when we were sort of assembling in October was um, we, we, coalesced around three ideas, uh, accessibility, transparency, and accountability. So mm -hmm. we want everything mm -hmm. we run in the center to be accessible to everyone. Um, a lot of the people who come in aren't necessarily going to be able to go spend, you know, $1,000 on a weekend retreat somewhere. I mean, until very recently, you know, I was in grad school, like uh, there was a whole world of retreats that were totally inaccessible to me um, because I was living on a grad student income. And that's one version of a situation that a lot of people are in, especially in San Francisco, where there's this vast 
wealth inequality. So we want to make sure we're accessible to everyone. Hmm. Um, we also want to make sure in light of what did our prior organization in that we are operating in a transparent manner and that we maintain a channel of accountability. Um, so we're accountable to each other and we're accountable to our Sangha. And, um, you know, Shinzen Young has said a few times that what makes good teachers go bad is they sort of lose that accountability, that there stops being a feedback channel. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure to have that. And then um, the other decision we came to was that we are student-led and we're going to stay that way. So we are literally peer-to-peer in that we don't have any teachers as part of our governance structure. We're all student-run. So we certainly maintain open communication with teachers, and we're in the process right now of assembling a teacher's council that we'll liaise with as our own executive council or Monday meeting group, um, who we can go to to ask advice and um, ask for help programming, you know, ask advice for who to bring in for daylongs, that kind of thing. But our weekly meetings and our decision-making structure is going to be all students. Um, so in that way, there is it is like literally peer-to-peer. So let me ask you one tricky question here. Sure. Can a teacher be a student? Yeah, we're actually we've had um, an amazing week where, as a group, we've we've handled some pretty heavy uh, ethical questions, and mm. this is one of our questions right now. We have. Um, one of our members is about to start teaching. So they've been a member from the beginning. They're like a member of the community and a really trusted voice. And they're about to become a teacher. And so we're in discussion right now about what we do in that situation and kind of where's the line. One thing we decided on pretty early is that no matter how much we sort of want everyone's voice to be heard equally and want this to be um, a, a, word, a term we've used a lot is a flat sangha where sort of every voice has value. Um, we just knew that if there were teachers in the room, there was going to be a deference to them or an extra weight to their opinion um, that all of the presencing of every voice being equal wasn't going to be able to overcome that kind of imbalance. Um, and so that decision got made early on. And now we're actively thinking about a sort of more nuanced version of that. What happens mm-hmm. when a student becomes a teacher and what do we do there? And so we have a few options on the table, and this is actually our agenda item for our Monday meeting. So maybe we can update in the show notes. Yeah, well, it, I think it's really interesting the, the the questions you all are grappling with. Um, they're ones I've been grappling with for a long time as a you know teacher and student and designer um, of systems. And well, there's a lot here, but I, I I guess just to say, I think it's cool that you all are grappling with this and coming up with new answers to a question that up until, yeah, till recently in the Dharma world, I see, you know, there was a particular kind of rote response to the question of how to deal with this. And it usually 
is centralization, you know, just central centralized systems mm -hmm. and, you know, with feedback loops and stuff, but still central. And so it's just interesting to see the kind of experimentation and kind of breaking out of that um, response. Um, that's what I get excited about when I see what, you know, what you all are doing. Um, Cause it feels like it's part of a larger movement of questioning um, how we organize ourselves together as a community, as sanghas, as, you know, Buddhist inspired or connected or whatever, um, mindful, you know, throw in your next <laughs> 10 buzzwords <laughs> that capture all these different associative, you know, interests and identities that are overlapping. Yes. Um, yeah. It's like, it's complex, but, um, I, I, that's, that's one thing that really struck me and a big part of why I wanted to talk to you about what you're doing, because it's, it's, it's so part of this, you know, kind of, I, I would say new movement of a pluralistic Dharma. Um, that's like, not just, a, you know, what I've seen changing is that, you know, the plur, pluralistic Dharma has been around for a while. You know, one of my teachers, Jack Cornfield is I, I really, I think a, been a pioneer in that respect, really including more and more voices and living it you know, not just talking about it, but actually living it as an activist and, you know, um, and really pushing it forward at spirit rock, um, you know, where my wife is trained and he's been pushing, you know, the idea of a plurality of enlightenments, uh, for, for a long time. Um, but to see it, that plurality, you know, what does it actually look like on the organizational level? not just in terms of how you teach Dharma or understand Dharma, but how does, how does it enacted in how we do our bookkeeping, you yes. know, and our, <laughs> how to make decisions about who goes on the schedule and how, you know, how, who handles sending a donation check to the teacher that came or, you know, what are the, you know, all of those questions. Yes. Like how and, are the ideals embodied at that, you know, at that scale? Yeah. And it's, it's really amazing to work with a group of practitioners when you're doing this work. Um, when we notice that things are starting to get concentrated, like we had something that happened with programming where there was in the sort of like chaos of the fall, um, we were coming together and meeting once a week. And then all of a sudden we all kind of realized at once because this person asked for help that, there were like 12 to 15 of us coming to these weekly meetings and only one person was doing all of the programming <laughs> because we were so preoccupied. Everyone had sort of picked their thing that they were doing. Um, mm. And we also, like I mentioned, we're an all-volunteer collective. We all have jobs. Like we all have day jobs that we do. Um, right. This is your uh, hobby project. This is definitely a, a passion project. <laughs> passion. That's better. Better word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so over the last six weeks or so, we completely decentralized the uh, programming and booking process. And so we make um, serious programming decisions collectively as a group. Um, but then we're now in a situation where if someone, any of us wants to book a day long, they can pretty much autonomously. So that whole process is now, um, is held by the group instead of any one particular person. And in that way, it distributes the work, it distributes the, um, the power and it distributes the decision-making 
to the group, to the collective, rather than resting um, on any one particular person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, um, I forget the name of the you know, the author or the whoever, you know, who, who I'm citing here, but the, you know, this, the sort of a swarm intelligence stuff that I've run across on the interwebs, mm-hmm. uh, and swarm work. Um, I should probably Google this while we're talking. <laughs> 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 gotta, gotta, gotta pull on the second brain. That was some good, uh, third wall breaking. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> That's some good fourth wall breaking yeah, right there. <laughs> glad you can admit that you're doing that. <laughs> That's fine. I, I forget shit all the time. <laughs> There's a phrase uh, I learned in California. Like, I'm a lifelong New Englander and then I moved to California like a little over a year ago. And I learned that I've learned a lot, um, but I learned the phrase permissioning the space um, by doing something, you enable others to do something. So now I feel like I can Google things too. <laughs> yeah, please, please do. But you know the, the 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 basic idea and hope being that you know if we could kind of work in more decentralized, swarm like ways on projects, um, that perhaps and this is part of the idealism I'd say of the cryptocurrency movement as well. Um, although you you know it's it, it doesn't always take this kind of more collective communal vibe. It can be very you know left libertarian as well. But, um, you know, I, I think you all are kind of wrestling with that question of how do we decentralize our systems and workflows? And, and, and the weird thing is there's not a lot of software for this kind of stuff. That's what I found looking into it. It's like, there are not many groups. There's things like Lumio, you know, for like collective decision-making. And Mm -hmm. I found a, project called co-budget for collective budgeting um and there's you know there's some stuff uh, a lot of good resources from michelle bowens and the peer-to-peer foundation um and then there's that wonderful book that you and i were bonding over reinventing organizations right uh, uh author i can't remember um yeah so there's a lot of great resources but um how have you how have you all been approaching the question of how to organize yourselves because when i asked the question Two, um, can a teacher be a student? I also mean it not just like in terms of your organizational schema, but like if I were in a community that I really felt part of a sangha, I would want to feel because I'm a, I, I have the role as te- of teacher. Mm-hmm. I want to feel that I can also be a student in my own community, and I don't know what that you know would look like or even mean. And it, for me, it's a kind of koan. Um, yeah that could there be a, a type of flu, enough of a fluidity of these roles that we could actually inhabit both teacher and student roles and in a meaningful way um, and, and maybe like in a conscious way. But it seems like the way that you're handling that right now is to start off by, f- by having a firm kind of firewall between those two just saying, Hey, like we don't want the teachers to start to influence how we do business here or how we organize or do stuff yes um as a way of protection it sounds like and as a way of kind of staying true to uh a structure that we feel like maximizes sort of safety and freedom for everyone involved Mm. um and i my first my first thought in a very literal way is that 
a lot of our teachers come to the other events that we run. So like when, um, you know, when Daniel Ingram came and talked, I think almost all of the regular teachers were there in the audience, you know, asking questions and being part of the, the group of just practitioners who were excited to be there. So in that way, I mean, when we actually come together to sit, those lines aren't really there. Um, and we have a lot of different teachers from the Bay Area who will drop in on, you know, any given night and sit and ask questions during the Q&A period. Um, but then, yeah, when it enters into governance structure and decision making, we all felt the need to sort of like formalize um, that distinction in a way that enables the students to be autonomous and self-governing and accountable to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay, cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so you've just moved. <laughs> so this yes. is the other part of the story that, that I don't <laughs> even know. I don't know the background. So you, you recently moved back to the East coast and yeah. I guess it sounds like you're, you're able to continue participating in the Monday meetings, even at a distance. Yes. So, um, some fantastically technically adept people, um, set up zoom for the meeting. So I'll still be zooming Perfect. into the meetings and, nice. um, doing as much of my role as I can. So I start, uh, a new job on Monday. Uh, I'm starting a postdoctoral fellowship to, um, test out a new brain stimulation technique. in the visual system of humans. Yeah, it's going to be technically challenging and very cool if it works and a really interesting nut to crack my brain on for a little while. Um, (laughs) Spoken like a true, you know what? (laughs) Shouldn't have to reference the the name. (laughs) It is in my nature. Um, and so it's been my first week away and coincidentally, this week has been a very interesting week for the collective. Um, and so I've been participating as much as I can remotely and we'll see how it goes once I start having a real day job again, but there are many of us. So one of the things we did, you know, through one lens, we're a lot of different things depending on the lens that you look at us through and, through one lens, we're a startup nonprofit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. we're a San Francisco startup. And one of the things when I've been reading about startups is the cautionary advice is don't, don't scale too quickly. Keep it as small as you can for as long as you can. And we've started with uh, like 15 people. So, so we started up and scaled instantly. And that actually for our organization has significant advantages because people can step up when they have free time and then they can um, offload back to the collective when they have less free time. So um, like the person I mentioned, Amy, who's been like doing a heroic amount of the programming work also teaches. So now that her teaching schedule is ramping up, a lot more people have been stepping up to do programming and booking. And hopefully the way it works is that I can still contribute as much as possible remotely and stop by in person when I'm in town. Um, but we'll see what happens. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So 
I've been reflecting on the collective idea since I, you know, got to see your nascent collective. And, um, you know, I mentioned that book, Reinventing Organizations, um, which is a really fascinating read because it's kind of a look at some of these emerging organizational structures. Uh, one of the ones that's featured in the book is called Holacracy, uh, which we talked about. And that was developed by a software engineer uh, named Brian Robertson. And I know, I know this not because I read it in the book, but because, um, I was part of a startup, one of the first startups that adopted Holacracy in 2000, I want to say it was six, uh, Integral Institute, um, which, uh, was the nonprofit that was there to support this philosopher's work named Ken Wilber and Ken Wilber's integral theory was one of the major influencing forces behind Holacracy, (laughs) Um, so, so there's a sort of deep incestual, um, kind of connection there that folded back on itself at some point. (laughs) It did. It took a while. Thank you for following that everyone. Um, but what's so interesting just to share this, that story is that, um, it didn't, Holacracy did not work at Integral Institute because Ken Wilbur didn't trust the structure enough to cede his control, to distribute it, to to distribute the authority into the Uh, uh, organizational and governance practices of Holacracy and into the like legal bylaws that would have um, made his role much more clearly defined, but much less autocratic. Mm -hmm. And so um, that is a organizational structure that I have a lot of familiar with having practiced it at multiple startups and What's interesting about holacracy um, is that th- it is self-organizing in the same way that I hear you describing um, the sort of self-organizing process that you all are going through. Mm-hmm. And with holacracy, it's also non-hierarchical in a certain sense, meaning there isn't um, there isn't that kind of org tree, you know, with this like hierarchical structure, but it does have a nested nature, um, just like cells. It it kind of focuses on nesting, what they call nesting holons, uh, circles of complexity. Uh, And and those are nested within the larger organizational structure, the big level. And then there could be smaller things, which, you know, traditional organizations would be considered departments. Um, But what's unique about holacracy is that they also have what's called double linking in the, in their practice. So, you know, in normal organizations, you have a CEO or a leader and they like tell everyone what to do (laughs) and responsible for getting results, um, in holacracy that sometimes that's called the lead link. But then you also in every department have that person who's the director or the, you know, the executive or whatever. Um, in holacracy, you have someone who also represents the needs of that circle or they call circles or we in traditional called departments back up, to the higher level, to the environment that that circle exists within. Hmm. And so they call that uh, a lead link and a, um, uh, I can't remember the other word for it, for this, for the other link the, that goes from the bottom up, uh, a rep link. Uh, and so the other thing that made Holacracy interesting is they had a process by which they decided how to, how to make decisions about how they make decisions. They had a meta governance process. Um, and use tensions as the vehicle for processing um, things at that level. When something 
kept coming up again and again, no matter how people changed, how they were doing it or who was doing it. There's these same recurring tensions, like conflicts or opportunities would keep coming up. Those would be the grist for the mill of these governance meetings. And the outcome of that would be new roles and accountabilities that exist within the organization that people fill, but aren't identified with. Um, and um, new policies and new limits or constraints on how things can be done. So that was a really interesting system, but very complex. I mean, it took me a while to just describe, give you the overview of what makes right. it unique. Yeah, You all are kind of, it seems like going in with less kind of a preconception of like, we're going to do this newfangled thing. I'm like, we're going to kind of go in there as practitioners and our love of this community and just like try to figure this out. <laughs> is, that, is that kind of accurate? <laughs> yes, we actually have, again, we've sort of resisted any kind of top-down imposition of a structure. Because um, you're and, the rebels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Makes sense. And, and we've been just kind of being present with what's emerging. Yeah, that's we interesting. Did, we did just recently, we had a, a, a lot of kind of energy around March uh, because March is our six-month um, milestone for being operational. Um, so the fact that we've made it this far is just incredible. Um, and we're all um, like humbled and thrilled and super excited. Um, but also we've realized we can't just wing it forever, which is <laughs> what we've been doing for the past couple of months because we're kind of in survival mode. Mm. So, so we recently did this, um, you know, eight hour facilitated leadership retreat mm. where we had a lot on the agenda, but we all agreed kind of emergently as a group that if we spent the whole time and all we got out of the whole day was a decision-making process, we would all be happy and satisfied. Mm. So you were um, looking for something like yeah. that, that could help, help make decisions. Yeah. And before that, uh, like I said, we've been operating kind of anarchically yeah, um, yeah. and political you know, alliances. <laughs> That's what that means. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you got to use your interpersonal skills um, because people were just doing what they cared about. And everyone is very um, mindful. So it worked for a few months for mm. everyone to just pick up what they cared about and run with it mm. and make it happen. Um, but the problem with that is that the trickier decisions can get put off forever. And hmm. so we needed a way to be able to make the more kind of sticky decisions. And we have, <laughs> we have a great example of this, um, that's almost a toy example, but it also really illustrates, um, a lot of the, the ways that operating without a decision-making process can both succeed and fail. Mm. So, um, so we had art on the wall in the front of the room back when we were against the stream. And a lot of people had a really difficult time looking at it um, because it just, it brought up a lot for them. So we decided, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll cover it with this like sort of sheet thing and then we'll figure out what to put there later. <laughs> And now it's been six months and the sheet thing is still there um, because there's 15 of us and we don't know how to decide with all 15 of us what's the art that goes there. Um, and so that's it's in some ways it's a trivial example, but it's also a really good illustration of, you know, none of us individually 
like none of us would feel right just making that decision and doing something in a totally different way than how all of us feel okay with bringing in, you know, a one-time day long for a Saturday or bringing in a guest teacher or, um, you know, doing something that doesn't last. In Have lasting, long. lasting yes, impact exactly. on your, on the visual space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. And so we have this like, <laughs> just beautiful visual reminder of why we need a decision-making structure that we see every time we go into the center. Uh, and it's also kind of appropriate. There's something like sort of kind of slightly funereal about having this sheet hanging up there, uh, which feels really appropriate for kind of mourning the vibrant community we were. And now we're transitioning into celebrating the community that we're becoming. And that's one of the um, one of the first things we're going to decide on is, OK, what, what goes there now? Um, so that's a little bit of a trivial feeling example, but it really illustrates where joyful anarchy starts to break down, um, because as a group, you need to be able to collectively make a decision if it's going to affect everybody. So we did this day long facilitated retreat. It was uh, fantastic. We had a facilitator named Daniel who did a lot of um, interpersonal and group work with us. Like we together answered questions like, um, what is my experience being in this group? And um, we talked about, you know, hopes and fears for the center. Another commonality that came out is that um, basically none of us, all of us had resistance to the idea of a five-year plan. All of us were like, plans? Ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's been an interesting experience running an organization with, uh, with that attitude. Mm. Um, and we came in, different people came into the day with different suggestions. Um, some of us came in with top-down suggestions, like, okay, here's a governance structure, and here's how a decision-making model would flow out of yeah, that, that would governance have been me. structure. That would yeah, have been that's, me. I'd that be like, me. here's a locracy. Yep. Here's my sales pitch. <laughs> <laughs> that are was you on too. board? <laughs> yeah, we are similar people. I went in and did a whole routine about uh, town meeting because I'm from New England. So oh, like, that's interesting. Here's how town meeting works. And, you know, there's a small board and then it's opened up periodically to the town, which in our case would be the wider Sangha. And what we ended up deciding on was basically imposing essentially a, a, a sheer, like a, a very sheer layer over the way we've been operating that's more quantifiable. So we decided to do this fist of five polling. Have you, are you familiar with this? No. Oh, okay. So basically we didn't decide to impose a structure on ourselves. We um, instead decided on a voting method. Um, and so you can use this method to either check in quickly with a group um, or um, figure out when you need to build consensus. And so if someone comes with a proposal, um, you use your hand to vote. Okay. So if you hold up five fingers, that's basically a hell yes. That means I love this idea. I will help implement it. I like it so much. Okay, I'm I'm on the agileforall.com website and I see okay, I see yes. the five fingers. <laughs> right, you have an augmented uh, brain over Absolutely there. Absolutely <laughs> best idea ever. I'll champion it. That's what they say on here on the website. Yes. And 
that is a big deal in a volunteer collective. Someone saying, I will help implement this um, means that you, you are really willing to, you're, you're going to work for free to make this happen. It's in a way, it's a kind of collective ownership, right? Like you're saying, I kind of like, I, this is so important to me that I'd be willing to like put my energy behind this, not just. Exactly. And then what it also does, and this is one of the beautiful things about it is it prevents the need for committees because basically the fives become the ad hoc committee or department Mm. for executing on that proposal. Okay. Um, And then four, three, and two are varying degrees of, so four is I, um, I like it. It sounds good, but I can't um, help implement. So that's essentially like a very positive indicator, but I can't actually, I don't have time or bandwidth or energy to work on this. Three is cool. Yeah, I support it. Um, I'm not going to implement it, um, but I don't have concerns. I don't feel like I need to discuss it. Two is I have some concerns about this proposal. Um, And one is I have serious concerns. And essentially, if we have any proposal where anyone puts up a one, that means we stop and we talk about it. Um, And then a fist uh, is, um, our read on the fist is, I'm prepared to leave this group if this proposal goes forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that would be hopefully a decision that's that polarizing never comes up, but that would be something where at least one member felt like it was going against a core principle of our organization if we made a decision going Mm -hmm. that way. Okay. So essentially this shows us very quickly without um, say going around the circle and all 15 people talking about each proposal. Yeah. it Um, It compresses that stuff into a hand gesture. Yes. And then we have a quick read on what should be discussed more and what we can just go through with. Mm. Like we recently had someone who wanted to donate uh, or loan us a a um, picture of a medicine Buddha. And that was just all fours and fives. We were like, great, cool. Um, And it's possible that someone would have, you know, had an issue with that, uh, but they didn't. So we, we didn't even discuss that. We just moved Mm -hmm. moved right on. Right. Why, Um, why, why go there? you, You don't need to. Exactly. And then what we've also built in, um, in addition to the Fist of Five, is a, a post-vote kind of healing period. So I've noticed when I've lived in community before, um, there have occasionally been votes where certain people felt like they were brought on board with a decision that later on they don't totally feel like they were really on board with, or someone, you know, wanted to talk about something more. So the decision-making metric helps us arrive at a decision, but the decision isn't the last um, point. Mm -hmm. The last point in the discussion is when everyone feels like their voice has been heard and where we can move forward as a collective with nothing having gone kind of unspoken, um, with everything out in the open. So Mm -hmm. back to our back to our principle of transparency. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, this is a way that we formalize the decision-making process that we've been doing already. We'd basically been doing everything by consensus. So there was sort of a threshold 
where people were operating autonomously. And then above that threshold, we'd bring things to the group and we'd establish consensus before we went forward. And this is a way to more efficiently establish group consensus and also know who really needs to be part of the discussion, who are the people that feel strongly and who can we who can we listen to and bring into the discussion in a more um, in a more active way? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Cool. So that's that's really thank you for sharing the kind of behind the scenes uh, yes. as it's emerging, you know, uh, process because uh, it's really interesting to hear kind of what the experiment's like. And yeah, uh, I mean, if we had if we had a guiding teacher. This would be sort of, you know, whenever we had something that felt like we were struggling with, the guiding teacher would probably be the last word. Uh-huh. Um, yep. And we don't have that. So the last word comes back to the collective. You know, not only do we not have a guiding teacher, we're not even affiliated with any particular lineage. So we we are like, whenever we feel like we need to refer to some sort of higher authority, that higher authority ends up being the group, the Sangha, and the Dharma in kind of increasing circles. And when we needed to, before we had a decision-making structure, we were having uh, an art opening party. So one of the things since you visited is we we have art on the walls now. We have uh, Christina Lazar is displaying her art now. Oh, nice. And we're going to have rotating local artists um, we're calling it the Anicha Gallery, and uh, nice. uh, the art's like going to change like every four months. And then for each um, new artist that comes in, we're going to do a little art opening, like gallery opening. Mm. And so the question came up before we had this fist of five process: uh, Do we have alcohol at this thing? Um, gallery <laughs> Oh, the classic ch- <laughs> challenge yeah. of a Buddhist-based dharmic. <laughs> Related organization. <laughs> Are we going to be good Buddhists or bad Buddhists? And we had a lot of people in the art world um, who had a sense of how it's done in the art world that, you know, there's always wine at gallery openings. People are going to be expecting wine. And then um, we had a group, uh, you know, representing the people who were coming in as yeah. a refuge and there are people here in recovery. Right. Well, and- that, that that is a, a different yeah. Community and ul- ultimately, um, you know, all of those voices were heard. And what we ended up doing was looking back to the Dharma. And, you know, there's been a lot of, well, I'm sure you've been part of these conversations around what the fifth precept was oh. actually referring to. Oh, indeed. Um, <laughs> right. But one thing that's unambiguous is alcohol, um, we think, in the fifth precept. So we we went all the way back to the Dharma and we said, this is what that says. So we're going to. Mm. We're going to go ahead mm. without. And it was fine. We had kombucha. Everyone had a great time. <laughs> she doesn't have any alcohol. <laughs> a little middle one. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. Just to, keeping your toe right there at the edge. Exactly. Good. Um, <laughs> uh, Embracing the non-duality. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. So I'll, I'll, I'll share a little bit of side story here that kind of relates. Um, so... Emily and I uh, are doing a Dharma teacher training program, and we have four folks in that training. Um, all of them, I would say, very re- uh, rebellious and strong, strongly autonomous in their orientation. And we've been crafting our kind of ethical 
statement as a community, the heart of insight um, community. And part of what how we've decided to handle the fifth precept is that for us, the fifth precept is about restraining from being intoxicated while teaching mm. unless it's an explicit part of the teaching environment. Mm -hmm. So that's actually a pretty big shift, you know, from traditional Theravada lore <laughs> or way, way of doing things. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, there's another precept that has to do with uh, sexual misconduct. And we could have taken a similar thing there and said, well, it means not abusing, you know, our, our, you know, using our sexual energy to harm, harm one another, make each other uncomfortable in, in ways that are inappropriate right. in the, in this environment, unless it's explicit. We, but, but that's not something we did. That's not, <laughs> that's not going to be Probably an explicit was. part of our teaching. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. there are, but there, but the, the thing is, if you go back to the, it depends on your lineage and your training for us, we've, right. we haven't trained in the tantric traditions. And so it would be totally dishonest anyway, because it's not our, our training and it's not, you know, it's not like our main area of focus. So that just felt appropriate, but it is interesting to go into these conversations and questions about how do we, how do we live these ethical and moral trainings, you know, and what does it actually mean? Um, these precepts, like What's the relevance of them, really? Yes, and one of one of the things that our center, um, one of the things that I think is kind of unique about us compared to some other centers is that we focus heavily on practice in the world. You know, we're in the middle of a city. Um, we have sits that respect working hours. We're for lay practitioners, and yeah, so we're operating in that space where um, it's really where the, where the rubber meets the road dharmically and how do we bring this into our lives and live in a way that's in accordance with these principles that also respects the fact that we're living in the world with householders. Yeah. Fair, fair, fair enough. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, what I could imagine, I could, I could imagine other people adopting your non-model. <laughs> um, you know, I could see that other people might be interested in, you know, have forming a Dharma collective of some sort. Yes, that would be super cool. And I, I you know, it, it seems obvious to me that it'll happen um, one way or the other. I mean, people should go to your website, sfdharmacollective.org. Mm -hmm. to see what's going on there. And I just, I keep getting your emails and it seems like there's more and more activity, more and more things coming through. That seems like a really healthy sign of, uh, you know, of growing community. So um, I really wish you all the best with this experiment and, and I hope other collectives emerge. And I hope other, what really excites me looking at the larger landscape of the, you know, kind of Dharmic world is I hope other types of self-organizing entities, um, emerge trying different, you know, different ways of doing this. Um, and I hope we can all sort of stay, uh, linked somehow. Um, even though there's probably going to be 
differences of opinion on the best way to self-organize <laughs> and yeah. the best way to decentralize or distribute authority. Um, yeah, well, those those differences is, is how we all learn and how we all become mm -hmm. better organizations. Yeah. Uh, sort of improvement through friction. Yeah, and hopefully we yeah. can just solve this real obvious problem of, of just like people abusing their teaching seat and and people uh, and and in and creating communities in which we invite infantilization you know from like yes, smart people exactly. by setting up yeah. these really you know sage in the stage like can do no wrong no one gives them feedback you know kind of old school teaching hierarchy yes that's exactly what we're trying to do away with and by not being affiliated with any teacher or any lineage. We're bringing in teachers um, from all different lineages. Which is exciting and, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And having um, our uh, leadership structure be a large group of students means that no one gets to be in that position of not having to be accountable to everyone. The teachers are accountable to the collective. The students are accountable to each other. And ultimately, we're all accountable to the Sangha and to the Dharma. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.